Hello, and welcome back to The Kicker, Columbia Journalism Review's weekly podcast about the media. I'm David Uberti, a staff writer for CJR. We're going to do something a little bit different with this week's episode. Our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope, teamed up with the good folks at the BBC World Service to create a radio documentary about Donald Trump. Obviously, our new president is not only a constant source of fascination in the American media, but also has been very perplexing for international watchers. So Kyle went down and did some reporting in D.C. and elsewhere and talked to not only people within the media to get their take on the changing relationship between the White House and the press, but also talking to folks who aren't involved in politics, maybe folks who supported Donald Trump. And he focused very heavily on this issue of public trust, which has seemed to bubble up to the surface in a very big way following the election. Not only why, generally speaking, Trump supporters don't trust the media, but also the genesis of that and what exactly it would take to earn their trust back. These are obviously huge questions that we all have to grapple with, so I'm going to let Kyle and the good folks at the BBC take it away, and I hope you all enjoy. The press has become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. Tremendous disservice. We have to talk about it to find out what's going on, because the press honestly is out of control. The level of dishonesty is out of control. As Donald Trump says, we need to talk about this. I am Kyle Pope, editor-in-chief of the Columbia Journalism Review, and this is Breaking News on the BBC World Service. How has the relationship between the president and the media reached such a low? Even more importantly, how has the trust in the media fallen so dramatically? The dishonesty of the New York Times is unbelievable. The dishonesty of the Washington Post is unbelievable. The dishonesty of all of those cameras, so many of them, not all of them, is unbelievable. With Donald Trump now in the White House, journalism has reached a moment of reckoning. Journalists failed to foresee the outcome of the election and missed the political views of a big chunk of the country. And the problem is, many people think he's right the media is hopelessly biased. What do they do now to restore trust? If you want to understand how bad the relationship between the media and the White House has become, listen to this story from Elizabeth Buehmiller, Washington bureau chief of the New York Times. One Friday at the end of last month, two Times reporters, Glenn Thrush and Michael Grinbaum, were writing a story about President Trump. We had a story about Trump's relationship with the press. And it was about how Trump was a master of the New York press. And Thrush had tried to get in touch with Sean Spicer, the press secretary. We went to fact check some of the story. Sean Spicer didn't respond. The story was published, but there was an error. Grinbaum and Thrush had written that Sean Spicer was New England bred and an editor thought that sounded like he was a horse, so he changed it to New England born. Spicer saw that we had gotten it wrong, that he was New England born, and went crazy. And he demanded a correction. And I said to him, we can't run a correction until you tell us where you were born. We have fact-based corrections. He called me screaming about this terrible mistake that reporters didn't reach out to me. I said, well, they tried to reach this morning. And I was like, what is, what is this insane? And so finally... 
I said, I, we, can't, we can't run it without you telling us. He said, well, can I tell you off the record? At this point, I said, okay. You know, I thought, is he, was he born overseas, you know? <laughs> was he an immigrant? I mean, you, all this goes through your head, right? So uh, he told me. It's not especially shocking. So we came up with this correction that was so bizarre, you know, and we just put in you know, parentheses, Mr. Spicer declined to say on the record where he was born. And of course, big surprise, it went viral, right? So where was he born? It must have come out since. I think it did come out, but I'm not going to, I think I was so bound not to tell you. so funny. <laughs> anyway, so that was just one of its little bizarre moments. So where was he born? Russia? Kenya? No. In fact, he was born in New York. Hardly controversial. But this story is just one of many run-ins between the White House and the media. Reporters from the New York Times, CNN, The Washington Post, and others were excluded from an off-the-record briefing. There were press conferences where only reporters from conservative media were called to ask questions. And of course, there's been the barrage of name-calling by the president. The media haven't taken this line down. They responded by calling the president a liar. Some have compared him to Stalin, others to Hitler, and many have claimed that he's eroding the First Amendment of the Constitution, which protects the rights of a free press. But this is an uncomfortable place for journalists, being part of the story rather than reporting it. Lloyd Grove is editor-at-large of the online news site, The Daily Beast. Well, I think outrage and froth which is the initial human reaction because the media has never seen anything like this before in the White House, is not an effective response. It's a human response. I don't see the Trump White House is going to tamp down. Today, we're now evil. I don't know if you can get uglier than that. I suppose the lowest form of life is that's not even human. You know, that's going to continue. And that's what the media, I think, has to screen it out and to do our jobs. But this is what journalists are in danger of losing sight of. What is their job? Should they just ignore the name-calling and report on Donald Trump's presidency like any other? Or is there something so particular and anomalous about Trump that they need to be unusually aggressive and oppositional? I think we should take a step back. First, you've got to understand that the media is confused. This is an unusual White House, it's more than just the hostile rhetoric. Elizabeth Buehlmiller from the New York Times told me it's also dysfunctional. You've got reports from various agencies and from the Hill that the White House is going to make this big policy change, and you call the White House to confirm it, and you get two different versions of the same yes or no. Because there's, you know, there's basically warring factions at the White House, and there's a Bannon faction, and Chair and Priebus, you know, it's, that's very hard to sort out. There's no real structure where the chief of staff kind of runs everything and then everything goes through the chief of staff up to Trump. One of the ironies here is that White House correspondents report they're getting more time with the president and other officials than they ever did under Obama. For example, when Meryl Streep made her comments about Trump at the Golden Globes, the deputy culture editor of the New York Times rang the president on his cell phone and got a comment immediately. So why is the president lashing out on the one hand, yet granting great access on the other? There are several reasons. First, things aren't going his way. I used to get great press until I said I'm running. Then they said, he's running. We don't want him to run. But I used to get great. Who got better press than me? I got great press, a lot of press. And it's true he did. 
Lloyd Grove used to cover Donald Trump during his days as a gossip reporter for the New York Daily News in the early 2000s. Even then, the stories about how Trump used to manipulate the New York press were legendary. Reporters who were around at the time believed Trump would use the pseudonyms John Miller and John Barron when he called journalists to offer tip-offs about himself. The most famous story that he is alleged to have planted was when he was with Marla Maples, and that became a whole tabloid drama, and he was still married to Ivana. There was a cover of the New York Post in which Marla Maples was quoted as saying, it was the best sex I ever had. That sounds to me like the work of Donald Trump or his alter egos, John Miller or John Barron. Because that's a good example of how he was able to sort of create a story out of perhaps thin air, maybe not, maybe it really was. Now he's on a stage where he can't control that message quite so easily. How much of his frustration do you think stems from that lack of control? The fact that he's not uh, running the table anymore in his relationship with the media, which must baffle him and enrage him. And that's uh, one of the things that's keeping him up at night tweeting. And what do you think is the psychology behind this Is this just impulsive on his part? I don't think it's a strategy. What it is, it's a lack of impulse control. He can't help himself. This is uh, someone who just blurts. I mean, if he really studied his success with the press, which was totally based on unfettered access Mm -hmm. and a kind of friendly engagement, do you think there is a chance that he could go the other direction, smother the White House press corps with access? Oh, Kyle, that's such a lovely thought. (laughs) I wouldn't predict that. So the president is trying to feel his way with a media he doesn't understand and a media that doesn't really understand him. That latter point is important here, too. The media's understanding of Donald Trump. The president clearly feels they're against him, and there's at least one grievance he keeps bringing up. I'm here following through on what I pledged to do. That's all I'm doing. I put it out before the American people, got 306 electoral college votes. I wasn't supposed to get 222. They said there's no way to get 222. 230 is impossible. 270, which you need, that was laughable. We got 306 because people came out and voted like they've never seen before. So that's the way it goes. Not only didn't the media call the election right, they said definitively that he wouldn't win. And 243 newspapers across the country endorsed Hillary Clinton. To get an assessment of why the media got it wrong, I found an unusual beast in New York, a journalist who voted for Trump. I'm already widely despised and suspect in my peer group. My past in Republican politics, my closeness to Jared Kushner, all those things already put me in foul odor with my peers. Ken Carson is editor of The Observer a publication that was until very recently owned by Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. I think that the fact that I was already mostly hated and the fact that I I just don't like to agree with the media class emboldened me to sort of call it like I see it. And call it he did. He thought the signs were there. You just needed to see them. The media should be embarrassed by how they covered the election. It's outrageous. I mean, the, the media representatives have a duty to try its best to explain in an objective 
and dispassionate way what's happening. The media failed to do that. And it's not simply that they failed to predict what was going to happen. You know, a tornado can strike, and that doesn't mean you're a bad weather forecaster if, if you miss it. But if all the signs of a tornado about to strike are there and you simply ignore them because your, your peers are laughing at them or looking down their noses at the tornado and then somebody's house gets destroyed, you, you failed as a weather forecaster. And that's what happened here. We had the best possible warning that this was on the horizon in the form of Brexit. I was in London in May, and the exact forces of populism and worry about globalism and hunger for someone to stand up and represent the values of nationalism and jingoism were in effect in Britain. Fair disclosure here, I was editor of The Observer before Ken Curson, and I have at times been critical of both the paper and its owner Jared Kushner since. But I do think Ken Curson's right. The media let itself down and should have done a better job. Elizabeth Buehlmiller of The New York Times again. We should have talked to more Trump voters. We did a, some very good stories. I think we just should have done more of them. But let's not forget, even the Trump campaign didn't think it was going to win. He had a concession speech written on election night. So they were as surprised as anybody else. The national polls were not, in the end, wrong. Hillary Clinton won by about 2%. So in that sense, the polls and the coverage reflected the, the actual popular vote. Reacting to what we were seeing in front of us, all of the things that Trump was saying on the campaign trail, all the misogyny, the racism in his crowds, the access Hollywood tape, I could go on and on and on. In any normal election, any one of those would have derailed it. There was certainly a lot to suggest Hillary Clinton would win, but this election has shown us the model was broken. This needs to be a huge wake-up call for the media. Journalists have spent too long talking to each other, to friends, and to contacts in Washington, and not enough time out in the country finding out what people want. You need to get out of the big cities and into the country. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to York County in Pennsylvania, an area that voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. So we're on hour three of our drive out of New York City to uh, rural Pennsylvania. We've been driving past country roads and churches and a place that sells guns and ammunition. And it's incredibly striking how entirely different this world is than the world we started out in in Manhattan. And it starts to make total sense of how this is really two different countries. This country has nothing to do with the place that we left. And you can see how, how easy it is for people to have completely different worldviews. I go to the offices of the local newspaper, the York Daily Record, where we meet John and Cheryl, Gary and Ken, all who voted for Donald Trump. Hi. 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 I'm Ken. Ken. Ken Hi, Kyle Hi. Nice to meet you. As you all know, we're here because we're interested in talking specifically about the press. The president has really identified the media as an opponent of his. Does anybody here completely wholeheartedly agree with him on his characterization of, of the press and, and how honest or dishonest it is? I'm John Johnston. I'm retired Army, 33 years. For a year, the coverage of the presidential campaign comparing Trump with the coverage of Hillary was just absolutely 
blatantly. No question. Even someone with a 30 IQ could figure out how one-sided the coverage was, trashing Trump at every opportunity, praising Hillary, or ignoring inconvenient truths. So it sounds like you identify with Trump's description of the media. You think it's accurate. I would defy anybody. I'll, I'll put up $2,000. Prove me wrong. My name is Ken Iman. My background is I'm a retired university professor. In preparation for this meeting, I did two things. I looked at the history of media bias, and I looked at current research in media bias. In the Vietnam War, Walter Cronkite was like the standard newscaster. His trust level was 100% with the American people. And one day he came out and said, this war is wrong. In my opinion, that was like a major milestone in a shift in the media from reporting the news to influencing the news. Harvard University has done three separate studies, and they show an overwhelming media bias. So one question is, why do we even have this conversation? It is a, it's a fact. The media has been proven liberal and biased in study after study. Gary Markle. I currently do volunteer work with juvenile probation. Kids have gotten themselves in some jams. I really have a difficult time watching any news. I really do. That, that's how jaded I feel I am. Locally, we have Rush Limbaugh and Savage on, and I don't even turn them on anymore. We have, you know, MSNBC. I can't watch. My daughter lives in Virginia, so we get down there a lot. So I read the Washington Post. Everybody knows that's left-leaning. But they've got some really good journalists. And yet I've read some articles in the same paper that were really bad. I think what intelligent people, I hope that's what we represent, they're trying to decipher all this stuff. They're trying to weed through whether it's left, right, whatever. I've never seen anything in my years of what we have today, the politicization of the press. So... Given all this, what do you read or listen to or watch? Hi, I'm Cheryl Johnston. I'm a retired teacher. Well, I watch Fox News, and I read New York Post. And as far as I'm concerned, that's more balanced. They give actual fact. I watch Fox News, but it's blatantly right-wing and all Trump all the time. I have to sort out their uh, slant and parse out the actual news facts. I personally think Fox is probably the most accurate. And there is some right-leaning, but I haven't seen any hidden agenda, I think. And I think they try to often show an opposing point of view. So for me, they're the standard right now. This is a deeply divided country, and this is a challenge to the press. The feelings go much deeper than support for Donald Trump. It is 11.08, and it's Thursday. You know what that means? Charlie Sykes is one of those who has been banging the drum against liberal media bias. Up until last year, he was a conservative talk show host in Wisconsin. He saw himself standing up for something the mainstream media were ignoring. You could go back really into the 1950s and the 1960s. Conservative media activists have been you know, pushing the, the narrative, and, and much of it justified, that there was a liberal media bias and that we needed to challenge that. My background was I liked the idea of having a, an alternative media, and I thought that it was going to add to the marketplace of ideas, but then something happened, and I'm still trying to trace exactly when this really went wrong, when it became this hermetically sealed universe. From Charlie's perspective, the conservative actions against the liberal media turned into something dangerous. 
You start a little fire, you know, to shed a little light, and before you know it, the forest is on fire. I always simply assumed that people would understand the importance and the necessity of the mainstream media. So maybe my criticism was somewhat naive, but I think what happened was that we got to a point where the criticism had been so relentless, had been so blanketed, that we succeeded in delegitimizing. And I've compared it to, you know, we were nursing a baby alligator in the bathtub, and then one day it grew into an adult. And look, <laughs> look, and look, and look what it was, what was doing. It's one thing for me to say, okay, you've run 100 articles, and two of these, I think, were unfair. That's criticism within acceptable bounds. But I think we woke up one day and realized that people were not going to look at any of those 100 articles, and that the whole concept of journalism had been discredited. It's this that makes me think that Trump's denouncement of the mainstream media is more than just his bafflement and not being able to get good press or an itchy trigger finger when it comes to Twitter. While I don't doubt some of it is narcissism and ego, it can't just be that, can it? There is a method to this, and it's very much part of their strategy, which is that by delegitimizing independent sources of information, he does immunize himself from these criticism. I mean, imagine a president of the United States who doesn't have to wake up and worry about is, you know, what is the CBS and the New York Times and the Washington Post writing? Because I don't care. My people aren't going to hear it or see it. I can discredit them if it's bad. And I have my own media. See, one of my real concerns is if Watergate took place now in the current media environment, do you think Nixon would have survived? I actually can make the case that he would have. So far, his treatment of the press has been largely amounts to name-calling. There is a lot of fear among media organizations that it turns much darker. IRS audits, criminal prosecutions of people, changes in the libel law. How dark are you on that front? I'm pretty dark. I think that what you're seeing is an assault on the truth that Americans don't fully understand because we've not experienced it. People in authoritarian regimes have experienced it. When a politician like Trump lies, or Vladimir Putin lies, it's not necessarily because they want to convince you of the false fact. It's part of the process of destroying your critical capability of determining what is truth. So that's kind of dark, is that we're in a post-truth environment, and this is not just a media challenge anymore. If this is the strategy, what should journalists do? One response has been to fight back, to be aggressive. On social media platforms like Twitter in particular, journalists from mainstream outlets are much more forthright about what they think of Trump, and it's rarely positive. But media opposition is a double-edged sword. While many may praise you, it can begin to look like a crusade. Ken Curson again. I don't agree with a lot of the tactics that Trump's team has taken. I think barring so-called unfriendly reporters from briefings is dangerous. That's a really toxic path to go down in a free country. But I, I think that they're essentially right that some of the places they've called out by name, the New York Times, CNN, the Washington Post, are all but hopelessly biased against the president. They, they believe that something went wrong, so to speak, on November 8th, and that it's their mission, an almost religious mission, to correct that mistake. When the New York Times called Trump a liar on its front page, there was a great deal of debate and criticism about whether it had crossed a line in its reporting. Should you use the word liar about a president? One person who spoke out was Michael Oreskes, the head of news at National Public Radio. This started during the campaign, and there was an issue that came up about whether or not to use the word lie. Trump made an appearance at a church in uh, Flint, Michigan, and 
the night at the church, one of our reporters was there. And, and the next day, Trump started to describe what had happened at the church the night before in a way that was uh, completely phantasmagorical. And our reporter did a fabulous job, I thought, of describing what he personally had witnessed and then juxtaposing it with what Trump said had happened at the church. And there was no way anybody who read that would have any doubt about what the reality was. But he never called anybody any name. He never personalized it in that way. He simply presented the facts. And I thought that was a very powerful piece of journalism. And I frankly thought it was more powerful than summing it up by saying, we NPR believe this or believe that. And on that one, we started to get complaints from some listeners who said, well, why didn't you sum it up and say that he lied? And so that was actually when I first weighed in. Now, then there became the whole conversation after the election about using the word. And I continue to believe that in most of these situations, you weaken your journalism by coming to that kind of a judgment when it's not necessary. The readers and the listeners, they're smart. They know. They can understand what you're saying. You don't need to do that. And frankly... You want to hang on to that one for when there's just absolutely no other way to do it than to say it. Charlie Sykes, on the other hand, believes that covering Trump is a watershed moment. I sympathize with a lot of their coverage. One of the great ironies was that there was outstanding journalism during 2016. I mean, there were stories that were missed, including like how he won the election. But being, being serious, I mean, there, there was outstanding investigative reporting. And I do remember when the Times did call him out, and, and I did think that that had to be the new standard. You know, what do you do? Do you think it's, it was appropriate for them to do that? Yes, I think it was absolutely appropriate. I think it is, it's necessary for them to do it. We have to push back on this. It's hard to believe that we're only two months into this presidency. There's still a long way to go yet and a lot more reporting to be done. Journalists, though, have to stay focused trying not to get dragged into Trump's war because the real problem they face is how you convince people like those I met in Pennsylvania, to trust the media again. With the liberal media, if we could just sit down and engage in a conversation, you hear me and I hear you, and we may just agree to disagree, but even trying to sit down, there seems to be so much anger and distrust and fear, almost fear. Absolutely, Americans are talking past each other. If I'm wrong about something, tell me I'm wrong. I, I don't want to be looking like the village idiot. But it seems to me that the people who are opposed to that concept all are on the Democrat side. I mean, as far as I can perceive. Opposed L to listening. To listening. My father told me when I was a young kid, you don't talk politics and religion. I think today we have to change that whole concept. I think that what we need is to engage one another to be able to exchange ideas and not get into some type of political rant. It's time for us to engage. It's time for us to challenge the press to get more accurate information so that we get a, an honest dissemination of news so that we can make intelligent choices. This is a pivotal time for journalism. Our business model is under strain. Our audience increasingly doesn't believe us. We personally are feeling under siege. But I continue to believe that if we rise to the challenge, we could emerge from this moment with the sense that we have entered a new golden era with more great work for more people than any other time in our profession. The stakes have never been higher. 
Breaking News was presented by me, Kyle Pope. The producer was Wesley Stevenson.